Wow, there is nothing sweeter than congregational voices. That was wonderful to hear you all. And uh, wonderful to be at this point where it's hard to find a place to sit if you have more than a couple of you and your families uh, as we move into our 1045 next week. So tell all your friends, tell all uh, people who are a little more sleepy heads uh, and want to get up a little later that this place is going to be open twice on Sunday uh, and they can come at 1045 and when we fill that service, we'll figure out the next best time for a service too. So um, we're in this section of, of Ephesians where we're talking about the new person uh, after your conversion, after you've come to the place that you bowed the knee before Jesus and repented of your sins and turned the running of your life over to him, uh, there's this work of change that Jesus does. And um, part of it is putting on that new person in Christ, which is the ultimate discovery of who you're really meant to be, uh, and we've been looking at the things that have to get displaced out of our lives. Um, anger, bitterness, unforgiveness. And then we saw that the highest expression of a life surrendered to God is a life of love. When we really, really just become a source of love in our relationships, that's the highest place of it. Uh, and we looked last week at the fact that this world is not a friend to that kind of living. Uh, and he set before us the challenge uh, that can be a little complicated. And that's why this section calls for wisdom, where we need the wisdom to know how not to walk in the darkness, but how to not so separate ourselves from the darkness in the world that we become irrelevant. Um, and it takes wisdom to know how uh, to live in association and loving relationship with people, but not to be pulled into the darkness. And so that's what these verses speak about. So uh, let's put this section up uh, and... I want to read you the word of God just in these three verses. The word of God says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Uh, this text is about how Jesus changes the way that we use the allocation of time. Um, time is an amazing resource. Everybody has the same amount of time or hours in a day. And if you spend time, uh, it's like a coin that can only be spent once. The way that we spend our time can be spent once. And here he's saying that when Jesus is in charge of our life, what he is calling us to is to live a life that is lived to the hilt. He says here, to make the most of every opportunity. That's the specific word for time here. And it's saying that if, that if Christ is in your life, that the call of God on your life is that you live the most significantly impactful, um, fulfilling life that you could ever live. I, I love the way uh, Charles Spurgeon said it. He said, if I had a thousand lives to live, I would want to live them all for my Lord Jesus Christ, because that is, that is where the fullness and riches of life is. And so I want you just to get that, that vision where he's saying, don't be foolish. If you could see everything the way it is, um, you would want, if you could see the beginning from the end, you would want the fullness of a life that is yielded in every decision to Jesus to make the most of it. Um, do we have a little video that demonstrates this? Oh, we don't have that video. Okay, next week, I'll show you this cool video. But uh, I'll tell you about this video um, because, and maybe some of you saw it, but it's this father's son and the father is pitching to a six-year-old. And they're in a ballpark, looks like a high school baseball park, 
And a little son with his aluminum bat hits the ball and it goes over the fence, home run. Have you seen it? In that moment, the dad with his little six-year-old acts like um, the World Series champion has just been won in the bottom of the ninth inning. He dances, uh, he cheers, he moves across the entire, from the pitcher's mound, um, running after his son, and, and when, he, when his son crosses home plate, he lifts him up and cheers. And I was just thinking like, that is dad who is making the most of every opportunity. That, that is who I wanna be in terms of relationship. I wanna be firing so present in even the small victories that I am so there that, that I'm able to be absorbed in that kind of joy. And we're, we're gonna look at three things about this text, um, about the, our use of time and the use of our life. And the first one is to understand our need for wisdom. Um, wisdom is not a list of commands to simply, you know, it's, it's not a, a recipe, but it really is a relationship with God that allows us in every customized situation, every relationship, to know how to, how to live in the midst of that. Uh, a, a wise life is measured, but, and the fulfillment of a wise life is measured not by the duration of that life, but by the depth of that life. Uh, one person said, it's not the duration of life, but it's the donation of life. It's not numbering our life by the number of breaths we take, but by the moments that take our breath away. Uh, and it's, it's not the number of years we live in life, but it's how we live those years. Um, in the um, King James, they translated a very difficult word here where it says, make the most of every opportunity as redeeming the time. And what he's saying is, buy back the time that could be squandered, frittered away, so that it is used in wisdom. And, and wisdom, again, is not just a list of robotic commands, but it's, it's understanding applied knowledge. In, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, there's more than a dozen different words for wisdom. Uh, and in different situations in life, sometimes the wisest thing to do is to simply go by what our intellects have become convinced of, and we pursue that. Other times, we go with a commitment that we made, even when everything else looks like it would go against that commitment, we say, but, but I made this commitment, I'm gonna follow through. And there are still other times where the wisest thing to do is to go with your, with your heart, with your feeling of what a person needs in that situation. How do you know when to follow which? Uh, it takes a, an applied kind of wisdom. Um, and so when he says, verse 15, he starts by saying, be very careful. Uh, the word actually means look around the whole circle of your life. Um, it's sometimes translated act circumspectly. And what he's saying is do a 360 review of your life. If, you, if you're, you've been in the business world, you know what a 360 review is. <laughs> sometimes it can be painful. Uh, I've had them as pastors, as a pastor before just saying, I want to find out all the data, and you, you kind of want to find out, and you kind of some of you are like, oh no, I don't want to find out. And the 360 review says, um, you take the people who are supervisory over you. You take the people who are your peers and colleagues, who you're, you're rowing at the same level, and then you take the opinions of the people who are underneath you. Anybody ever had that done? <laughs> it's not an easy thing to have done. <laughs> you hear all of those voices, and, and one time we did it as a team, as a staff, and um, 
serving as the pastor, I got to pastor the rest of the team through it. And sometimes we'd find out like, hey, I'm really good with authority. I don't play well with people who are on the same level. Or I don't supervise well someone who is needing to report to me and I've got to exercise that. And so they, they all reveal a, a point of wisdom. And what I'm saying is this verse, be circumspect or be careful, is saying, look at all of the different levels of your life, all of the different people that your life touches and ask the Lord to bring his evaluation to it. That's, that's what he's saying, be circumspect. And what he's saying is Jesus is comprehensively Lord. And we don't have all the wisdom. We don't even know what it's like to be on the other side of us in every relationship. Amen. That's really what, what a circumspect, to do a, a whole overview is, is really asking all the different relationships to say, what's it like to be on the other side of me? Scary question, right? <laughs> it's like I remember once we were in a, a discipleship course uh, and a, a husband really was moved by the Holy Spirit to ask his wife and, and say, what are the things that you would like to be, see changed in me, in our relationship? It was really at a tender moment. Uh, and he was about to come under deep conviction because when he asked her, she laughed and says, I don't believe you. <laughs> Now he continued to persevere in that and, and to say, no, I really mean it. And, I'm, and, and to show her that he really did mean that. But, but, but here is something that's very convicting. Do we really wanna know? Do we really wanna be circumspect? It's part of submission to Christ as having all wisdom to say, I wanna know. I, I wanna know what, what people impact on the other side of me. Uh, and, and again, the importance of this is um, our need for wisdom is that wisdom is what will glorify our God. It will, it will make his reputation great because we are his children. Uh, there's a section in the Gospels where Jesus says, wisdom is proved right by her children. Uh, and uh, if you've been a parent for a while, and like Liz and I are, are so amazed and, and over the years have been amazed by the accomplishments of our kids. And there's, if you, if you have some of that as an apparent, as a parent. I mean, it can be t-ball, and you just like feel awesome when your kid, you know, hits the ball instead of hits the thing the ball is on, right? <laughs> and and the thing about being a parent that is so so amazing, I find, is that when my kids accomplish something, I feel like I did it. You know, <laughs> I, I I never got you know the AP you know A plus grade in a course. We didn't even have AP courses, but when my kid did it, I feel like it's on my resume, right? <laughs> Any of you feel that? It's like this identity thing where like, but it makes you so happy. Well, Jesus is saying that when God's kids, when, when we act wise, he says wisdom is known by her children. And so it's important for churches, it's important for us as individuals to say, we are pursuing what the will of the Lord is. That's the last phrase in this section. That seeking wisdom is a way of surrendering your life to the will of of Jesus, and it is, it is always beautifying. It, it is always lifting up um, the story. And, and so the first thing is just to come to that place of humility to say, Lord, I want you to guide me so that I make the most of the opportunity I'm in. It's a beautiful forward statement, right? It's not wasting time and regrets in the past, but it's, it's moving in the, in the forward and it's saying, I wanna know what your will is right now. That's so present tense. 
I, I love that about a relationship with Jesus because no matter how much we've blown it or relapsed uh, or, or whatever our kind of pit we feel we're in, the Lord always meets us right in that moment and says, I have a will for you right now that is customized. If, and, and will you bow yourself and, and, and bend yourself to that will? So that's, that's simply the first point is humble yourself and understand your need for wisdom. Uh, the second thing in this passage though that I wanna develop is that we need to know our stage of life and, and, and the level at which we're living. We need to have, have a, a judgment about that. If we're gonna understand God's will, we've gotta in a sense know, you know where we are. It's one of the wonderful things about a GPS is that whenever you, if you hit it with the destination, I love the thing on there that just says your present location, because <laughs> it, it's tracking us. I know Google's tracking us, the Chinese government's tracking us, um, but it makes it so convenient, <laughs> right? But he knows our present location, and, it, and it's so important when we're asking for wisdom to say, what's my present location? Uh, I love how Psalm 90, where it says, teach us to number our days so that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And that little prayer in Psalm 90, verse 12, when it says, teach us to number our days, it's not just saying to know how long I've lived, but it's, it's to actually put a number, a, a sequence on where we are right now. You know, it's, it's different than to, than to say, um, I've lived this long in duration, or this is day number whatever for me, it, than to say, I can put a label on that day. And that's what he's saying. He says that, that God is able to locate us, not only numerically, but he puts, he puts a, a label on that day. And he goes on from there and he says, satisfy me uh, with your love early in the morning so that I can rejoice and be glad all my days. Um, when it comes to knowing where we are, <laughs> the sooner we get ourselves oriented to who, who Christ is, the more joy in our life. That, that's, that's what this promise means. When he says, satisfy me in the morning, he says, get me straightened out right away. <laughs> I, I don't wanna spend a lot of time going the wrong direction. I want you to show me um, where I am right now. And, and to know your stage of life is to know something just about the whole sequencing of life. I'm reading this book on spiritual development that is a mix of scripture and incredible um, human insights and church history called Sacred Flame by Ron Rollheiser. And, and it's, it's one of the, supposedly one of the most classic books and it's just given me some understanding about stages of life. And he talks about um, uh, something that church um, Pilgrims who have lived and pursued Christ with all their life have understood that there's, there's kind of a first half of life and there's a second half of life. And, and again, the first half of life is, is determining what you're gonna do with this thing of life. And the first half of life has the innocence of childhood and then, you know, and then you finally have to take calculus or something and you find out life can be work and then you uh, are moving through those challenges and adolescence and the stormy um, desires of adolescence push you away out of your home. It's part of, in a sense, the way God has set it up that we are moving um, away from the family that nurtured us because we're really, and he says, what we're really in search for is to find how do I rebuild this loving experience that I've had or how do I build something that is good when I haven't had a good experience? And he says, all of that is this, this under construction phase of life. And then the second phase of life happens when 
Maybe you have your first kid or your first mortgage <laughs> or, or your first realization. Like I remember for me, summers were always awesome. I was footloose and fancy free and I did youth ministry in Vermont uh, and upstate New York for three summers. And then I got an internship with a real adult job. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, I'm wearing a tie and it's July. My life stinks. Why did I trade all of that in, right? And there's, there's that feeling, and that, that when you reach kind of the bridge to the second phase of life, and like you've, you've got a marriage, maybe you love it, and you're doing well, but you've got kids, and your life is just the relentless responsibilities, and nobody told you about like, you know, credit card debt or, um, you know, insurance where you're just paying people for peace of mind that something disastrous doesn't happen, you know, and um, home maintenance and all that. And you just like, you feel over, some of you are not in your heads, you know, you're like, and it's just like overwhelming. And the, the question is to choose that second childhood. <laughs> to say, I want to go back to that second childhood. That's the midlife freak out. And, and by the way, midlife is around like 30 <laughs> for some people. But most of our life was lived in, in that second stage, and it's kind of knowing what stage of life are we in terms of just our regular running of our life? Where, where is our life? Um, and then where are we spiritually in that phase? Uh, I like, Roll Hodger tells a story about this, um, uh, actually an old monk named Father Makarios, and, and he's sitting with a man who asked him, he says, do you still wrestle with the devil? This guy's very aged and says, do you still wrestle with the devil, Father Makarios? And the old monk reflected for a while and he said, not any longer, my child. I don't wrestle with the devil. I have grown old now and he has grown old with me and he doesn't have the strength. I wrestle with God. And the young person said, with God, you wrestle with God and you hope to win? And he said, no, I hope to lose my child. That's the whole point of the wrestling. I'm hoping to lose. And, and I, I love how that framed it up, if you're tracking that like, um, it's almost like the parable of the prodigal son. The first half of life is like the prodigal son illustrating the first half of life. He's very much caught up in the fiery energies of youth and is metaphorically struggling with the devil. And the older brother kind of illustrates the second half of life where he says like, you know, all my life I've been slaving for you, struggling instead with resentment, anger, jealousy. But in reality, he's really wrestling with God. <laughs> And he's the one who stands outside the party. But it's the younger one who actually, yeah, he was wrestling with Satan and he saw how ugly it was and he came and he submitted himself to God and he says, Father, I'm not even worthy to be your servant, right? Amen. That's kind of an illustration of the first and, and second half of life. And, and, and it brings us to that point of surrender. Sometimes we are dragged kicking and screaming into that second phase of life where, where you know, it can be a medical issue it can be an accident or a tragedy. It can be a disappointment. It can be a disappointment with religious people or church. Hang around long enough, it will happen, right? Uh, and all of a sudden, some of our, our trust and kind of that, just that youthful enthusiasm is washed away because the real commitment that, that is going to mean so much to us and to God is when we're able to do something when we don't even feel like it. I, I remember... Um, two of my real close friends in college got married and um, they actually had a section of the service where yeah, they said the traditional vows because I'm all about this traditional vows. Um, but then they also said they wrote their own vows and I remember and uh, 
They have a great marriage, many, many kids, and uh, my friend David said to his bride on that platform, where again, everybody looks googly-eyed at each other at that moment, right? Everybody, but one person I've married was really in love on the day they got married, seriously. Uh, and, um, and I remember David, had, he wrote these words to his wife. He says, Terry Ann, I promise to love you even when I don't feel like loving you. And I'm like, that's someone who is understanding the second phase of life while they're still in the first phase. That's someone who understands that, that the most lasting, the way to have a life that lives out every opportunity is a life that makes, those, that, makes that essential journey. And so again, the first half of life sometimes is, is choosing your love or choosing your loves or saying, what am I gonna do with this life? The passions, the, the desires, the abilities that God has given me. The first part of life is choosing your love. The second part of life is loving your choice. And what virtually all the social scientists tell us, and I think there's a lot of this in the Bible too that would say, is that while the first half of life can be cool, the most rewarding things are living out of that saying, I'm loving my choices. I'm leaning in even to the difficulties, the crosses, the things that have been difficult to endure. I'm, I'm living into those. I'm living in even to the point where some of the quote, so-called freedom Oralheiser describes it this way. He says, you know, a young man doesn't really want to just make um, a commitment and have romance with one person. They're kind of seeking to do that with the entire world, which is why a young person can have commitment phobia, right? And, and never experience the joy of actually making the commitment. It's kind of like a person who says, I, I want to spend a little time learning every instrument in the orchestra that can ever be played. Do you know how good you'll get on those instruments? You'll be playing Go Tell Aunt Rhody on the violin, <laughs> you know, and, and, and on the cello, and then on the flute, and then on the, like, but there's something to being committed to the call of God, to the place where your, your passions and your abilities and then the need that God shows you comes and intersects, and the call of God is where the way God has built you and the, and the crying out needs of the world come together in some blessed intersection. And, and, and that's wisdom. I think that's, that's part of saying, so, so where are you in your season of life? And, and then what stage of discipleship are you in? There are really just a few phases of discipleship. The first phase is really to move from being unconvinced and not knowing who Jesus is to come to a committed saving relationship with him. That's, that's step one, but that's conversion. And, and then after that, there's the essential discipleship, which is really just clean away the obvious messes of life. Uh, it's kind of pulling, it's the struggle to get your life together. That's essential discipleship. Most of us are pulled into that simply because life doesn't work without some essential discipleship. But mature discipleship is another phase in it. And mature discipleship is when I say, it's not just pulling my life together. I, I want uh, to give life away to other people. I, I want to change the trajectory. I don't want to just seek blessedness and order and the right commitments for me. I want to help other people get that. And I want to jump into the messes and, and, and help bring other people ashore. I, I'm not just good at swimming, I'm a lifeguard. Um, there, there's a sense in which that's what happens in, in that phase of life. And, and mature discipleship, it, it often comes in the midst of that second phase. It comes in that, that phase of saying, I've, 
I played nine holes. I've got nine holes left. Or, or hey, I'm, I'm, you know, it's half time. And, and what footprint have I got to show uh, for someone else? And all of a sudden, you, it awakens us to say, what, what am I actually going to leave? And, and the final phase is one that I think we don't see enough of, and that is moving from mature discipleship to radical discipleship. Where, where it just says, I want to give everything that I have away to the Lord. I want to surrender all of my, my energies, my abilities, my breaths, my, my, my relationships. Um, in this book, he describes it as, as many did through history. They said, the final struggle of Christianity may be the greatest gift that we can give our families and the people around us, and that is to give our deaths away. And he says, that can be so glorious. When, when we say at the, at, the, at the end of our life, I think this is why there's the phrase in the Bible, oh, let me die the death of the righteous. <laughs> or, or when it describes someone as old and full of years, um, that it says that, that to, to end, you know, not with just taking your foot off the accelerator and, 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 and ratcheting down, but to say that there is, there's still an intensity, though the, the feverish activity is not there. And so it's, it's in the midst of, of understanding what stage of life are you at? And then saying, what level of discipleship are you at? To ask the Lord the question, Lord, verse 17, if I want to understand what your will is for my life right now, in the phase of life that I am, uh, with the arena of relationships th- that I have, how's our relationship and what can I do to make that relationship with you deeper more real, more surrendered to. That's, that's really the question here. And I realize I'm, I'm preaching this sermon on the, on the very edge of what a lot of Christian traditions, not necessarily um, evangelical or Presbyterian traditions, have celebrated as the days of Lent. And look, here's the thing about Lent. Um, it's not a command in the Bible. Uh, you don't have to participate in it. It's not a recipe. But it's been recognized by all Christians that there is always the invitation of the Lord to devote ourselves anew and and the season of the life that we're in. Um, There are a lot of periods in the Bible for leaders or people that God uses, used to say, Lord, develop me in this season. And and sometimes they're 40 days. I just noted that Jesus, he fasted for 40 days so that he was strengthened to take on the devil. I don't think of fasting for 40 days as a way to get stronger, but that just shows how little I know about fasting. But he he was preparing for it. Um, He was was doing something in that season. And and here's, here's what Lent, I think, so masterfully does is when the ashes are put on the forehead, and my... My son and daughter-in-law practiced this in, in New York City, uh, again, in, in, in the church of the city, where they had the ashes put on their forehead, and they noted that back when it was safe to ride the subways, how many people had the ashes on the forehead? And and you know what the ashes mean? <laughs> um, the officiant simply takes those ashes, and we, we've saved them from the palms from last year, and simply says, you are dust, and to dust you will return. And And... and in the, in the heart of that, it's saying, you are beloved dust. <laughs> you are beloved dust, um, but you will return to dust, and you need the deliverance of Christ, and you need to be awakened and face that right now. It's, it's not facing it in morbid, a morbid sense. It's almost facing it 
in a sense of, of defiant surrender. <laughs> That's a weird combination, defiant surrender, isn't it? But it's, but it's saying, I, I know and I'm not afraid. I know and I have a deliverer and, and, and I wanna commit my life. And so Lent begins that way and then it says, live your 40 days nurturing this relationship about which your whole of life is devoted to, Jesus. And, and, and it's, it's saying live that and, and, and do some evaluation of how you are spending your time. Um, it's, it's why Lent often starts with giving something else because the Lord knows, and I think ancients even knew, that we can't just add other practices into a life that is already jam-packed. We've already, we have never lived in a time where the frequencies of our life are so jammed with so many things. I was reading statistics and I don't even know how it adds up to anybody doing any work anymore, but like the average American watches around four and a half hours of television. Um, they're on social media for four and a half hours or so, and they're on their phone for two or three hours. That's more than a full-time job. I don't know when anything gets done. But, but Lent is a time where, where we kind of ask the question and say, hey, you know, we're over a month and a half into this year. We're almost, almost one-sixth of this year is gone. And, and to say, if I were to spend the rest of this year the way I've spent the first part of this year, what would my relationship with Jesus be like? What would the blessing that is meant to flow out from me to other people look like? Uh, and, and what would Jesus have to say uh, about how I would spend that time? And you can often do an inventory. You can say, well, what are ways that I fritter away time um, that often leave me with regret? Social media, yes. Virtually always. Netflix, yes. Email, often. Meetings, a lot. Prayer, never. Meaningfully connecting with God, taking in his word, never. Reaching out to a discouraged friend and praying in preparation for how I might encourage them, never regret that. Bending down to, to meet a need and to be available and really answer the call of God in that, investing myself in that way, Never regret that. And, and, and Lent is really a time, it's, it's just one tool um, of something that we need to be doing periodically of just saying, hey, how's my relationship with God really getting expressed in the currency of time, in the currency of decisions, in the currency of relationships? So, so here's some quick things. I wanna just, just close this. Here's, here's some, some things about Lent. We're gonna, we're gonna observe it even with the ashes if you'd like to. For anybody who'd like, I'll, I'll be here at from 7 to 7.30, from 12 to 12.30, uh, and at 6.15, just that simple ceremony, and I'll give you a little sheet of paper with some ideas and suggestions, because I, I wanna tell you honestly, I've got some ideas of what I might do with this season of 40 days, but I haven't yet committed, and I, I need some time to pray about it. And that's what this is gonna be. It's gonna be that, be that time, uh, and, and the first thing is, that I think is so helpful with Lent is, the good news of Lent is it generally is a subtraction. <laughs> Most of us, are, you know, the last thing you need for me is to say, yeah, the preacher gave me some more things to shoehorn into my life. <laughs> That's not really good news. Here's good news though. There's probably a lot of things that virtually everybody in this room could subtract and not miss. And what you're subtracting is things that are not useful. So first is subtraction. Uh, and, and again, Lent is a kind of detox of your will. <laughs> 
to, to subtract some things. But secondly, it gains power when we replace what we've subtracted with what is better, with what Christ would want for us. So if you subtract and just say, hey, for 40 days, I think the world will be okay if I shut off all news, all cable news, no more TV, no more news channel. I think that your blood pressure might be better too. Um, but th- so that probably would be an improvement of a subtraction, but then to say, hey, but I'm gonna park myself in the Psalms and I'm gonna, I'm gonna set a section of the Psalms that I'm gonna read instead. And I'm gonna pray for the hurting world that I may be a little bit oblivious to. I bet you'll find out if there's some huge event that goes on. (laughs) But just see yourself off. That's subtraction, but then it also has a second element. It replaces it with something specific. If we're gonna redeem our time, if we're gonna make the most of our time, generally we need to do this in a concrete way. So we've subtracted something, but then we add something that is concrete. Something that is gonna give us divine input. And then, thirdly, we make it sustainable. Again, this is where recognizing, you know, if you're gonna start with a fitness routine, you know, you don't say I'm gonna run a marathon every day when you've never run. <laughs> you say, I'm gonna walk. Um, and, and so, walking may be simply to open up. It may be, may be reviewing a passage that is being preached on. It may be a study that you're in and say, I'm gonna spend time just the Bible and me. I, I'm gonna wall myself off from other inputs and I'm gonna take that in. Uh, it, may be a, it may be a person that you say, I'm gonna devote myself to pray and act toward a person or a need in a way that I've not been open to and I'm gonna, I'm gonna seek God's direction to be a fountain, a source of encouragement. I, I met someone recently who said that they have a list of people that they're not in um, a direct close relationship but they pray for anything they might do by way of encouragement, (laughs) um, uh, of some kind of comfort, or some kind of strengthening that they can offer to that person. Uh, I I have uh, another friend who went through a period where they felt very friendless. Uh, And they were very successful, but they just really looked at the inventory of their friendships and said there's really, there's not much compelling there in the way of mutual reciprocal friendships. And said, I am going to ask God to show me three people to act like a good friend would act toward them. And God brought incredible fruit from that in the midst of their prayer. Some real lifetime friendships came out of that. It switched the question. It's like, I'm, gonna, I'm not asking God, poor me, send me some friends. No, I'm saying, okay, God, mobilize me to act as a friend. So it can be that specific kind of prayer, that kind of investigation, but it, it's, it's sustainable. And, and it's, it's sustainable, again, because here is what this text assumes already, that you are God's child. What, the, what that means, a child does not have to win the approval or the affection of the father. It, it means that we're not auditioning for a role in God's kingdom, but if you are God's child, what it means is you're not trying to build a resume that's searching for validation. So much re- resume building is all about searching something to validate my life to justify my existence. Have you ever said that phrase? I just need to justify my existence. You've, it's an echo of the human heart. 
Here's the good news of the gospel. The good, the, the good news of the gospel says, uh, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, he went all the way, not just to the mat for you, he went to the cross for you. Um, he uh, accomplished and finished. He didn't just build a bridge halfway, but he completed the bridge the whole way so that you don't have to search for validation. Um, he completed everything that needs to be done for righteousness. You know that little section where he was with John the Baptist, where John the Baptist said, I'm unworthy to baptize you, and he, Jesus said to John the Baptist, he says, permit it now so that I can fulfill all righteousness. He was even baptized for the unbaptized person who comes to him, because he's saying, I've come to fulfill everything. <laughs> Which means as we go about this, we're not going about it with the kind of franticness that says, I've gotta somehow nail down something that will make me love, but you can say, because I'm already loved with this kind of love from God, um, I'm not waiting on external validation. I have it in Christ. I'm simply trying to open up the, the passageway so that I can be a conduit and a fountain of joy. That's what he's saying. And so I just want to commend you, um, again, Lent or not, ashes or not, but what, what would Jesus say to you now to say, this is how you can tap into a greater fullness of joy. I, I, I love that phrase in the upper room where Jesus says, I want the joy that is in me to be in you. <laughs> so amazing. Um, and, and so that comes through surrender. It comes through saying, Lord, I need your wisdom in knowing how to live my life. I need your insight so that I understand what stage of life I'm in. And then I need your answer to me to say, how would you want me to respond to, to deepen this relationship so that at the end of my life, I can in some way have come to this place of made the most of every opportunity? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you desire the very best for us. You want our lives to flourish. You want us to be a people who make places for other people to flourish. You want it to spread. And Lord, that every season of our life, you come to us with this kind of invitation to the more abundant and full life. And Lord, you're not even coming with any sense of scolding us about where we've missed it in the past. This whole verse is about understanding what your will is right now for our lives. Lord, there's not a person in this room that doesn't have a unique and invaluable set of situations, relationships, capacities, and presence that you would not uniquely use. And Lord, we just, we just want to be intentional that we would know what the will of Jesus is. If and Lord, take over. We know when a company gets a new CEO, we expect change. When we get a new CEO, we welcome the change, Lord. Your management is good. We want the government of our lives to be on your shoulders so that we can have the joy of King Jesus reigning and ruling over us. So Lord, in this last time that we're all together in one service for a long time, would you multiply the fishes and loaves of our lives? And would you give us the joy of knowing that we have rendered back to you in some greater way, won't be perfect, 
but in some greater way, we've rendered back what you have given to us, and in that, there is greater joy for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you stand and worship?
So good, the things we give to our God are not able to be shaken or taken away from us. Uh, I want to invite you, if you just need to linger in prayer, uh, we've got the kneeling uh, benches here. If you just want to kneel before the Lord and maybe finish a conversation he started with you before you leave, maybe, maybe there's something you need to commit to subtracting or taking on, and I encourage you to do that. Um, we have prayers also, and invite those prayers to come up, and if you want prayer for any reason, or you just never yielded yourself to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, they would love to pray with you, establish that, or encourage you in any kind of specific request the Lord has, has laid upon your heart. Um, we're not just playing church here. We're really meeting with a living God who, who loves to speak to us and loves to bring change. So don't leave here with that conversation only partly finished. I mean, you all know what happened in Kentucky. Service is still going on 10 days later. <laughs> so don't bind God in time. Um, lift up your hearts to receive uh, from 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace sanctify you through and through, body, soul, and spirit. May he do this. Faithful is the one who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. Amen.
Knowing you gets better in time. 